friends, members of the Greater Little Zion Baptist Church, we welcome you to this hour of worship and celebration as we celebrate the Lord in spirit and in truth. At this time, I want to invite you to receive a presentation uh, as an honor and as a recognition of our Father's Day on this Lord's Day. Back when I was a child, before life removed all the innocence, my father would tuck me in and tell me he loved me time and again. Those words spoken have become one of the most precious sentiments. As fathers depart us by the hand of God or the hand of man, we must ask ourselves, who protects our protectors? When our fathers tell us to look both ways before crossing the street, who makes sure they get safely across? When our fathers check for monsters under the bed, who scares away the monsters they battle in their heads? When our fathers tell us to keep our eye on the ball, who guarantees that they don't strike out? When our fathers tell us to be compliant, who ensures their safe arrival back home? When our fathers tell us not to steal, who promises that their hearts of gold won't be taken by a silver bullet? The same who that has given us our protectors is the same who that has always been. Our fathers are kept safe and sound by our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. A place where our protectors may let down their guard and lay their heads to rest peacefully without fear of attack. A place where a father is seen as a son before anything else. A place where without worry, without fear, without pain, we may dance with our fathers again.
Good morning again, Zion. Let us now prepare our hearts for the preaching of the word. I invite you to get your Bibles and turn with us again to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. We're going to be dealing with verses 8, 9, and 10. And also we'll make a, a brief entry into chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10 and a brief entry into chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Word of the Lord. Amen. I want to take a moment today, this morning, to address the question of why do we keep missing the mark? Why do we keep missing the mark? The title draws its origin out of the theme that John presents in this first chapter, and particularly as we come to the closing of the chapter, verses 8, 9, and 10, and the entry into chapter 2, verse 1. The single theme that is constantly elevated in the text is what we call harmodion, the noun uh, version, or the Greek verb harmodia, which is translated sin, the missing of the mark. What did John mean by elevating this term, missing the mark, sin? What is sin? What kind of effect does sin have upon the human race? There's a couple of other questions I want us to entertain this morning, and I want us to consider the effect it has upon us as we travel through the early morning of this 21st century. When we talk about sin, we talk about its effect, which is generally evil. Evil, the opposite of of good. Its effect upon humanity has had grave consequences over time. So we raise the question, why do we encounter so much evil? If we have to have evil, why so much evil? Why do we have to have 
such as William Rowe would say, gratuitous evil. That means, why do we have to have so much extreme evil? What is the origin of our deranged and dehumanizing pathology? Why do we treat people in such inhumane way? Why do we demonstrate such inhumane actions? What happens to what previous philosophers describe as our moral compass? What happens to that when evil takes its course? These are but a few of the endless questions posed across time when it comes to both humanity at large. And I want to contend this morning, particularly when it comes to black people specifically. Whenever you hear the words Black Lives Matter, it's often met with the response, all lives matter. But my question is, if that were true, why do we have to specify that black lives matter, if all lives matter. There's the often sense of a frozen face when that response returns, <clears throat> but yet we can't or we don't want to answer the question, why do we have to specify that black lives matter if all lives matter? We can call the role Trayvon Martin, Eric Gardner, Tamir Rice, Jamar Clark, Fernando Castile, Drejan Reed, Brianna Taylor, Ahmed Aubrey, Etzel Ford, Michael Brown, George Floyd, Rayshawn Brooks. Just to name a few who have experienced the outcome of this pathology of sin which leads to death at the hands of excessive and inhumane law enforcement. I want to raise another question. Why are black bodies so devalued and so dehumanized as property? Why does the law protect every people group in America but black people. There is a nature within us that is most popular. It is innate. And if there's any truth to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 particularly, it began there. This nature of disobedience, of sin, missing the mark, deciding to do so in its noun form, meaning to miss, meaning to lose, meaning to not share in something, meaning to be mistaken, the failure to reach a goal, one aiming at the wrong target, a deviation from the right path. When we listen to the words of Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15, if there's any truth there or if we're to emulate any truth, it sounds as if it may be what we're looking for when we talk about justice. 
Listen to the word. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the wealthy, but judge your neighbor fairly. That sounds like the kind of justice that we are attempting to experience, but we keep falling short. We keep missing the mark and the end result. Again, is what William Rowe calls this gratuitous evil, which ends up donating to the pathology of distress and adversity. Continuous evil, restlessness, and consistent trouble. John helps us in this pericope by using the conditional if clause in verses 6 through chapter 2, verse 1. And he does that to show how sin behavior has both a cause and effect. He uses it in the positive sense, the if clause, three times in the text. And he uses it also in the negative sense, three times in the text. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, in the positive, if we say we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and not practicing the truth. But if we got fellowship and walk in darkness, we're not fulfilling our obligation in the light. And although it sounds like a negative, it's a positive in the sense that John says we have fellowship with God. He further says in verse, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, John raises a critical issue there in suggesting that sin has a universality and that it affects all of creation. And no one can lay claim that we do not have sin, says John. Yet, he says in a very powerful way that if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's a negative, says John. And yet he says again in verse 9, which is another negative, actually a positive, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. John is pushing both sides of the equation in reference to this concept, this innate activity of sin within us. In verse 10, he says that we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar God, and the word is not in us. That's another negative. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the Son, Christ Jesus. Here's what John is really saying. Sin is a heart issue. It's a heart problem. In Psalm, the fifth Psalm, and verse 9, listen to what the Word of God says. 
There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destructing itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. The psalmist is identifying the evil action and the sinfulness of a character who is before him and reminding us that it is a deep heart issue when we start talking about sin. He tells us also in Psalm 28, Psalm 28 says the text, and particularly verse 3, listen to what he says. He says in reference to another, David, don't drag me away with the wicked, with those who work iniquity, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. He's contending that please don't lump me in the group because I'm trying my best to stay away from the sin factor. But none speaks more pointed than what we get out of the book of Proverbs and particularly verse or chapter 4, verse 23, where the writer admonishes us to watch over our heart with diligence because out of that, flows the issues of life. In other words, the writer is trying to say, whenever you find yourself in the practice of evil, check your heart, because that's where evil grows out of. It can be quite deceptive, the heart as well. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 25 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is mere destruction. But none more pointed than what we find in Jeremiah chapter 17, where the prophet tells us in verse 9 and 10 that the heart is more deceptive and deceitful than everything else, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, Jeremiah and the writer of Proverbs and the writers in the book of Psalms are reminding us that this sin issue, when it gets into our heart and it begins to flourish and grow, it never leads to a pleasant conclusion. But it always ends up in a destructive manner. I read those opening questions earlier in reference to the pathology and the reality to which we witness on a consistent daily basis because I want to know specifically why. Why is this kind of behavior, why is this missing the mark of being humane not expressed to black people? And I conclude by saying this. John makes clear in his writing that the kryptonite that I spoke about on last Sunday, the sin issue can only be met, can only be dealt with, can only be defeated in verse 8 and verse 10 of chapter 1 when we're willing to confront it. And let me say that the oppressors to which we experience this constant behavior of oppression in this country has never, and I don't believe will ever be willing to confront the sin issue in their heart. 
They have a hatred and an anger. They have a posture in which they look as if there is a loving intention in their efforts, but love appears to be far from their space. Their unwillingness to confront the evil, the sin that exists within them causes that kind of pathology to be constantly perpetuated. But then John says that unbeknowing, I guess to them, that all they need to do is to practice confession, verse 9, if we recognize and admit that this issue of sin is reigning within us, God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse of all unrighteousness. In other words, this thing is a heart issue, but it even goes deeper than that. Back to verse 8 and verse 10 of chapter 1, it's deeper than that because it's not only confession that has to be done and confrontation in terms of confronting the evil in their hearts but also this pathology consistently goes on we keep missing the mark because they have no conscience there is no conscience and when your conscience is sheared says Paul you do evil and it never convicts or bothers your spirit and John says that if we say that we have no sin, something's wrong with us. And then if we say that we have not sin, the truth does not exist within us. In other words, I believe John is trying to help us understand that the only way this kind of change can occur, that the conscience has to be appealed to. And when Martin King, with his posture in terms of the kind of paradigm he used to carry out his ministry, his objective was to appeal to the consciousness of man and to appeal to the morality of man. That he may be able, through the word and the Holy Spirit, penetrate this malady called sin. But we consistently receive the short end of the stick, the practice of injustice, because there are those who hold power who have no conscience. Then there's another thing that John says, not only conscience, but they have no conviction. They have no conviction because, says verse 10 of chapter 1, there's no word in them because they are convinced they are not sinning. They're not going against the will of God. They're not exercising inhumane treatment. They're not dehumanizing anyone. They're doing what they believe to be some form of superior innate privileged space in creation. There's no conviction that all people are created in the image of God. Instead, there is in their space, God created one people superior and another inferior. And when you have no conviction, don't ever say what you won't do when you're placed in diverse circumstances. Because people, I'm certain, who are 
may not be practitioners of the evil, but because their voices are silent, they are perpetuators of the evil called sin. They have no conviction. They have no conviction. But then John also says that one reason why people continue to perpetuate evil dab into sin, it is the preeminent priority and the controlling substance in their life because there are no consequences. So we know that whenever there is no consequence, we are far more eager to follow through on yielding to the temptation. James tells us in his writing, chapter 1, he admonishes us not to allow ourselves to be carried away with the temptation and the enticement of our own lust or the invitation of sin. When that happens, it is conceived and sin is birthed and when sin is finished, it brings forth death. But we are afraid of that consequence because there are times when we have been warned that if we do certain things that the consequence will be grave we will think about it before we actually do it. For example, uh, it's a clear indication that we won't steal because we're told if we do, we'll be prosecuted. So we think twice. If we kill someone, we're told that we very well could be held for first-degree murder, which could give us a life sentence without promote, prom, uh, parole. We'll think secondly about that. I want to contend that the racial injustice that we continue to experience is pushed by this ideology of both sin and its effect upon the human heart because we've given no consequence to its violation. Whenever a consequence occurs, it causes one to think before they go through on the action again. I'm convinced that we will never get justice until there is some form of consequence that meets the crime committed. Then there's one final thing. Says John that you will never ever change the heart of those who practice sin by legislation. You will never change it by passing laws or or trying to enforce some sense of guilt by way of morality. It may work for some, but it won't work for the majority. Instead, I think John tells us in the text, particularly in chapter 2, verse 1, that if anyone does sin, in fact, he says, I'm writing to you because I don't want you to do this. In other words, he's not suggesting that you won't sin, but he's saying, I don't want you to go down that path because sin is destructive. And he says this, if you do, we've got an advocate. We've got someone who can walk along beside you. And the final point John makes is, can bring about conversion in your life. And when that conversion happens, says John, we get to deal with the sin issue with the help of two elements, the person of the Holy Spirit and the power of the word of God. And until then, we will always miss the mark 
until we're willing to confront the kryptonite in our life, until we're willing to confess that we indeed are sinners and we need to have a change in our spirit, until we're willing to admit that we need to have a conscience to remind us of the inhumane and the injustices that we expressed on other people. We need to have conviction. Conviction that God created all human beings equal. And we need to have a consequence when we are determined to go off the path to inhumane and unjust treatment. That can only come if we have a conversion. That conversion comes through the power of God's word because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Prayerfully, we will come to understand that missing the mark keeps happening because we really have failed to recognize that we are sinners who need to be saved by grace. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Consecrate this hour, O Lord, in thy word, that as we listen to your spoken word, that the spirit of truth will lead us and guide us and bring us to a place of repentance that we might experience your power transformation through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. As always, we extend the invitation to life with the hope that if there's somebody who listened, have been listening to this sermon, and God has spoken to your heart, you will be willing to make a decision to trust Christ as your Lord and your Savior today. We certainly want to admonish each and every one of our members and friends and thank you for being supportive of this ministry. And as always, as we conclude each of our worship services, we encourage you to continue to support us, whether it be by text giving with your phone or by e-giving through our church website. We appreciate all of your contributions in any manner in which you decide to give unto us. Let us now prepare our hearts and minds to go before the Lord. This is our communion Sunday, and we want to have a moment in which we come together to break bread. We invite each and every one of you at this time to get your communion elements as we come together to break bread. The Bible says that Jesus took bread and gave it to his disciples as he looked unto heaven and gave thanks for it as he did give it to his disciples and they did eat together. Let us eat together. Likewise, it says he took the cup and looked unto heaven and gave thanks for it. Then he gave it to his disciples as they did drink together. Let us drink together. And when they had finished, they sung a hymn and went out into the Mount of Olives. We can leave ourselves today as we have virtually departing one from another, celebrating the chance to break bread together and to worship the Lord in spirit 
and in truth. Have a blessed, wonderful day in the Lord, Zion. Look forward to seeing you on Wednesday evening. Be blessed as we move forward in kingdom business. Amen.